Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, yet they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, 
Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, when your people Israel were wandering in the wilderness without water and they were tired and thirsty and weak and weary, you told your servant Moses to strike a rock and water gushed forth to refresh all the people. Father, your people are gathered again. We are thirsty, we are weary from the journey, and we ask, Lord, that you would refresh us. We ask that you would cause the word as it's opened to pour forth refreshment to your people. We pray that your spirit so fill us with Christ during this time, that it would be as he promised, rivers of living water flowing from our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us life in this place, that you'd do this as a work only you can do. And we trust in you to do it, and we thank you ahead of time. In Jesus' name, amen. So happy Pentecost Sunday. I have no Pentecost greeting. Is there a Pentecost greeting? We need to work on this. We're going to do this. We've got to do it right. But, um, so happy Pentecost Sunday. This is one of the five major Christian holidays on the traditional church calendar. So you have Christmas, you have Good Friday, you have Easter, Ascension, and then you have Pentecost, like Josh was talking about. And all five of these are tied to the life of Jesus. We don't always think of Pentecost being tied to Jesus, but we'll see that in this text. All five of these are tied to Jesus' life and what he's done. And keeping them reminds us that our salvation is tied completely to Jesus and what he's done, not to us and what we've done. Amen? It's good news right there, isn't it? So Jesus dies on the cross on a Friday. He's raised on a Sunday. He spends 40 days walking around showing himself to be alive and well. Then last Sunday, we celebrate that he has bodily ascended into heaven. And then 10 days later, 
you have Pentecost, when Jesus sends forth his spirit down to dwell in all of his people in a brand new way. And so that's what we're going to think about this morning. And we're going to be in this text, John 7. This takes place not at Pentecost, but about six months before at something called the Feast of Tabernacles. And as you could tell from that beautiful reading that Dan did, there was a buzz about Jesus at this feast, you know. He goes up first secretly, and then he kind of gets drawn out to talk to people and, and to engage with them. And the feast was full of drama about Jesus. There's a question circulating, who is this Jesus? You see in verse 12, somebody's like, oh, he's a good man. And somebody goes, well, he can't be a good man if he talks like that. If he's, if he's saying he's God, if he's proclaiming this kind of authority for himself, you know, there's no way he can be a good man and do that if that's not true. So he's either a good man and he's really God and he really is who he said he is, or he's something far worse, right? I mean, think about it. If you were taking a college class and uh, it's your first day and it's art history or something and you go in there and your art history teacher says he's God, your creator, and that you ought to leave everything and follow him. Do you leave that place and say to your friends, man, that was a good teacher? No, right? He's only a good teacher if he is who he said he was. In verse 15, some people say, like, how does this man have so much learning when he's never studied? You know, what explains the words of Jesus? What explains his teaching? It's so provocative. It's so amazing. It's so honestly, clearly truthful. Later in the text, you know, the guards say, Something like, no one ever spoke like this man. Isn't that true? What explains his teaching? And then somebody else said, oh, he has a demon. He's certainly evil. Uh, in verse 40, some people say, well, he's the prophet that Moses prophesied about. And others say, he is the Christ. And so verse 43 says, there was a division among the people. Who is Jesus? Is he a good teacher? Is he a liar? Is he worse? Is he a prophet? Is he something greater than a prophet? That's the question at this feast, six months before the cross. So who is Jesus? Jesus gives his own answer in the midst of this Feast of Tabernacles. So this is the fall of 32 AD. Like I said, six months before Passover and the cross. The Feast of Tabernacles was the way that the Jews would commemorate their wandering in the wilderness. It's really kind of a cool thing. It was a time to remember when they were brought out of slavery in Egypt and they wandered for 40 years. And the Feast of Tabernacles, or also called Booths, was a time to remember how God took care of them when they had no real home. And so it was a reenactment. They would build little shelters, and they would live in them for that week. And if you were in a rural area, you'd take branches and leaves and, and make kind of a little hut out of it, and you'd live in that for seven days. Isn't that awesome? This is hardcore camping. This isn't glamping. This isn't hashtag van life. Like, this is the real deal, right? You're like putting branches together and living under them. And it'd be so fun, right? Wouldn't it be fun for families? Maybe not. Maybe it'd be horrible. How many of you guys have had horrible camping experiences with young children? You're like, it'll be fun. We'll go out there. And then it's like, I think we're going to kill them all, you know? Like, but the, in the rural area, they would do branches and leaves and things like that. And then if you're in the city, you would camp out on the roof. I just think this sounds like the coolest thing. We need to do more reenactments. But the best place to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles was in Jerusalem, and that's what we see in John 7. And it was best there because they would remember the pillar of uh, fire that guided them in the wilderness. They would remember it with kind of a light ceremony, and they would remember how God gave water to them from a rock with a water ceremony, and I'll talk to you about that in a sec. You guys remember Exodus 17? Exodus 17, they're wandering around the wilderness, they're, they're disobedient, they're complaining, they're, they're saying, oh, Moses, you brought us out here to die. Why does God want to kill us in the you know, desert? And things were so much better where we were. And slavery was awesome. 
you know, we just sat around pots of meat, and we had all of our needs taken care of, and of course, we weren't slaves. We forgot about that part, right? And so they're complaining, and so God tells Moses to take his staff, strike a rock, and out comes water, and it's just a ridiculous amount of water that comes out of this rock, enough to give all the people water. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, they remembered God doing that with this water-pouring ceremony. Now, this isn't something that was in the Old Testament law. It's something that developed a couple hundred years before Jesus. But during the feast, that seven-day feast, they would take a golden pitcher, and they'd fill it with water from the Pool of Siloam, and they would carry it around in procession. So they were carrying around this water, and the high priest is there, and they're kind of marching around. And when they got to the south side of the inner court, there would be three blasts of that. So far, you ever seen that horn? You know, it's like a horn. You blow it, and, and we need to get one of those, too. And uh, they would blow this three times, and the temple choir would sing the halal, so they would sing Psalm 113 through 118. And when they got to Psalm 118, right afterwards, they would cry out, all the people would say, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And it was to say that God alone, the Lord God, is the only one that gives life-giving water, both in the past and now, that God is alone, the Lord God is the only one that gives life-giving water. So here's the crazy thing. So in the middle of this celebration, when, God, when they've done this whole water, you know, right, and all this stuff, Jesus stands up, right? When they just said, God alone is the one that gives living water, it says in verse 37 that Jesus, on the last day of the feast, the great day, stood up and said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is a little shocking, right? This is a little shocking, and this is a little crazy. Can you imagine their faces? They just proclaim that only God can do it, and he says, that's me. Imagine their faces. I wish I could have been there to see this, you know? You can't take Jesus anywhere, can you? You know, you take him to this, and, and he does this, but they were asking, right? They asked who he was. He wants to be very clear to them who he is, and he says loud and clear that he is the Lord God of the Exodus, the one who gives living water. So that's, that's who Jesus is. He makes it very plain, but what does he come to do? Take a look at verse 37 again. The second half, it says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it says, Now he said this about the Spirit. Jesus has come to give water to the thirsty. And you think about, well, what's this water? Well, handily enough, John tells us in verse 39 that this water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus came to give them the Holy Spirit, to give them God himself within their own being, in their heart. This means kind of bowels. It's like the center of your being, you know, that you would have God himself dwell in there. And when Jesus says that it's as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, that's not a direct quotation of any Old Testament passage. He's probably, what he's doing there is he's combining multiple references of where the Old Testament promised that one day God would come and he would give his Holy Spirit to his people in a new way. We see passages like in Joel 2, where he says, It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. So it, when you look at the Old Testament, you see the Holy Spirit very active in people's lives, but mostly in people doing very significant things in redemption. You don't hear a lot of the Spirit being in people, but you hear of the Spirit coming upon people to empower them for all sorts of ministry. And Joel says that that's going to be liberally applied to every Christian, that the Holy Spirit will come within every Christian. 
The prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 47, is this beautiful picture of in the end times that this river of water will flow out of the temple to bless the whole world. And we know that 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 image of water is an image of God's presence. It's the image of the Spirit coming out. And it's a really cool prophecy because you've got the temple and you've got like coming out of the door, there's just like a little trickle of water, but as the water goes out, it gets deeper, you know, and he was like up to his ankles and then up to his knees and then he had to swim in it, you know, and this, this water of life going out into the entire world and causing salt water to turn fresh and, and watering the parched ground and giving life all over the world, causing flourishing. It's a picture of God's presence leaving that confined area of the temple and going out and blessing and causing flourishing in, throughout the whole world. And guys, we need this, don't we? Anybody feel a little parched, right? We need this. Every single human being was made to find their life and joy in God. You realize that? Every single human being was made, you were made, to find your life and joy in God. We all have a thirst that only God can satisfy, right? Just like every single human being was made with a complex mechanism of hormones and signaling that causes them to be thirsty when they need water. Every single human being has been made with a similar instinct to crave the living water of God's presence. And it's the only thing that can do it is God himself satisfy that. And the reason why we have that instinct for regular water and we have this instinct for living water, God's presence, is because both are absolutely essential to your survival. And so we've been given both. Have you guys ever felt desperately thirsty? Some of you guys will probably get up and go get something to drink or whatever. I never need a bottle of water, but who knows? Have you guys ever been desperately thirsty? I mean, you don't think about other things, right? If you're desperately thirsty, you can't ignore it. You have to find a way to satisfy it. It simply must be satisfied. Guys, if we reject God, our spiritual thirst doesn't stop either. We still feel it, and it has to be in some way satisfied. The prophet Jeremiah talked about what we can do with that thirst when we reject God. What does that thirst drive us to do? What does this kind of self-imposed spiritual dehydration do? And Jeremiah 2 says it this way, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. The cistern is like a, a stone collection area to put water in. Okay, so you got this living fountain. That's God. He's he's overflowing with life and happiness and joy, and there for the taking. Right? He's there saying, "Come to me." You know, Isaiah fifty-five. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. You know, I will give him the water of life. And so there he is, overflowing with life and joy and happiness. That's what this whole world is, right? This whole creation is actually an overflow of the joy that the persons of the Trinity have within themselves. It's just like they wanted to share it. So they made all this. So you've got that fountain, and if we reject that fountain, and we, it says we make our own cisterns, like we make our own stone containers of water, and we think, oh, I don't need him, you know? I don't really want him involved in my life. I'm going to make this way to find joy and satisfaction. I'm going to hewn out my own cistern. But he says here, they're, they can't hold water. They're broken. They're dry. Forsaking God for other things is like drinking out of the toilet. But the toilet's broken. It's dry. It's got some sand in the bottom. Like That's what we try to do. We try to satisfy a spiritual thirst that, we, that should be satisfied by God. And we do it by trying to just heap sand in our mouths. Your unsatisfied thirst for God is the reason why you might work too much. 
or not at all. Your unsatisfied thirst for God might be the reason why you're not able to stop shopping, or you derive a lot of pleasure from gossip, or you're addicted to substances. Your unsatisfied thirst for God might be the reason why you seek out pornography or an illicit relationship, uh, adulterous relationship. It might be the reason why you're so desperate for your parents' approval. It might be parents, why you are so oppressive to your children. They have to be perfect. This is the way you're going to satisfy your thirst. Your unsatisfied thirst for God might be the reason why you're addicted to social media. You know? You're thirsty. You, know? you need to kind of satisfy that thirst that was made for God, and you look at for, for other things. It might be the reason why you lose a lot of money gambling. It might be the reason why you nurse grudges. There is a dark pleasure in being bitter. There is a dark pleasure in rehearsing the ways people have wronged you. There is a, a sick tastiness of feeling that surge of self-righteousness as you do that, right? Your unsatisfied thirst for God is the reason why you might be unable to leave a sinful relationship. Or it might be the reason you're abusive or controlling at home. It might be the reason why you're tormented by your body image. It might be the reason why you love judging others and feeling superior to them. We're thirsty. <laughs> if we don't get our thirst for God satisfied, we're going to look for it in other things. That unmet thirst for God, that's what Jesus is talking about. If anyone is thirsty, that thirst drives us to all the dysfunctions that we see in our homes and in our culture. Guys, it's just dehydrated souls trying to drink up what the world serves, right? And what they're serving is very nice-looking glasses full of sand, and what a blessing in the middle of the world's, you know, fake feast for Jesus to stand up and say, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Isn't that great news? If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You're like, oh, I'm not thirsty. Your life says otherwise. You know, I see all these ways you're trying to satisfy your thirst. He says, no, no, just come to me. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Guys, the best thing that could happen to you would be for Jesus to disrupt your feast, right? They're all having a good time. They're all having their things. And How many of you guys have had Jesus massively disrupt your feast? Yeah, it's a great thing. At first, you're like, hey, this is rude. Why are you getting in my business? And then you hear him say, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You're like, I am thirsty. I do need him. I would love for <laughs> fountains of living water to pour forth from my heart. Jesus is calling you this morning. He's saying, you don't have to keep living like this. You don't have to keep living thirsty. By the way, he's saying that to Christians this morning too. You don't have to keep living like this. You don't have to be thirsty and drinking from broken cisterns that can hold no water. He's saying to all of us this morning, come to me, believe in me, and your thirst will be satisfied. If you come, I will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit living within you as a spring of living water. It's an amazing offer. There's nothing like this. There's no other like religion or worldview or any other thing that's saying this to you and there's truth to it, right? This is, this, he is the source of all everlasting happiness and he's saying, just come, just come and drink. But there was something that Jesus needed to do before he could give us this gift and you see it in verse 39, take a look. He says, now he said this about the spirit, this is John speaking, he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now this doesn't mean that there were, the Holy Spirit wasn't active in the Old Testament. Okay? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God himself. 
he didn't come into being, just like Jesus didn't come into being, just like the Father didn't come into being, like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are eternal. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all involved in creation, involved all through the Old Testament. So what does he mean by the Spirit not being given? He, he means that the Spirit's involvement in believers' lives was different in the Old Testament than it was after Pentecost. And Jesus captured that in John 14, 17, when he said to his disciples, so he's talking like to Peter and John and people that clearly know him, he's saying this, you know him, the Holy Spirit, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So it's a difference between with and in, right? What happens at Pentecost is the Holy Spirit no longer just being with them, but he would be in them, permanently indwelling them. The Spirit wasn't given yet, it says in this text, because Jesus wasn't yet glorified. He wasn't yet ascended. Remember last week I was talking about how the, there's the ascension, and then Pentecost is like this, this aftershock, right? So you've got Jesus ascends bodily up to heaven, takes his seat on his throne, ruling from there, and then 10 days later, there's this aftershock of the Spirit coming down into his people. Isn't that amazing? It's an amazing confirmation that he made it, by the way. You know, so Jesus ascends up into heaven, and then, boom, we have confirmation he made it, right? The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in his people. But he's saying here that the Spirit hadn't yet been given at this point because he hadn't yet been ascended. There had to be the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and then Pentecost. Jesus had to deal with our sin, guys, before he could satisfy us with his presence, right? There was a bigger issue that needed to be taken care of, is the issue of our sin. Jesus had to first die for our forgiveness before the Spirit could fill us. So on the cross, guys, Jesus is paying for the debt of your sin, and he's also purchasing for you the gift of the Holy Spirit. On the cross, guys, Jesus endured the thirst our sins deserve. Right? That, that unsatisfied thirst for God that would actually go on forever if Jesus didn't meet it. I mean, if we all have been created with a thirst for God, a thirst that can only be satisfied by God, but we reject him, what's left except for the thirst to go on forever? Right? So that's what he's freeing us from. And remember, John said on the cross, Jesus said on the cross, I thirst. I don't think John records that for no reason. It's a picture, guys, that on the cross, Jesus was enduring the unending thirst our sins deserve to give us his endless living water. Isn't that amazing? Or to put it another way, Jesus was struck so that the water of the Spirit could flow into us. You guys remember how Moses struck the rock and the water flowed forth for the people to, to receive the water. Paul tells us that Jesus was the rock in the wilderness. Get this, guys. On the cross, Jesus is the rock that was struck in the wilderness to give us the life-giving water of the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? You know? The symbolism is really great on that, by the way, too. Moses being a picture of the law, right? Picture of what God commands. Striking the rock, Jesus being the rock, and then the Spirit flowing forth from Christ. You remember what John records happened when Jesus was pierced on the cross? He said that from his side flowed what? Blood and water. Interesting detail. I don't think it's just talking about pericardial fluid here, guys. I think that what John is trying to do is connected to this, that Jesus was the rock struck to give us that life-giving water of the Spirit. So then Jesus rose from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended. This massive aftershock comes, that ten days after the ascension, Pentecost comes, the Spirit comes down to dwell with his people in a whole new way. That was something Jesus earned for us on the cross. You guys remember another detail that the veil was torn 
leading to the Holy of Holies. So in the temple, God's special dwelling place within the Holy of Holies, there's this big curtain, only the high priest can come in once a year and with a sacrifice, comes in and leaves. And there's a, there's a detail that we're told in the Gospels, which is that, that that veil was torn top to bottom. It was torn away. And a lot of times we think, well, that was to be access in. But I wonder, actually, if that veil was torn as a symbol that God's Spirit was now leaving there to go and dwell in new temples. The temple bodies of his people. From Pentecost forward, your body. Isn't that crazy? Look at your body. It's like a weird thing. You look at your body and you think, he dwells now in these. He dwells now in your body. You're like, well, I don't like my body very much. Well, he does. He's dwelling in it, right? God himself dwelling in your body. If you're in Christ, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're that end times temple. Out of your heart flows rivers of living water. Just like Ezekiel talked about how the Spirit would flow out of the temple, out into the world, he has flowed now out into his people. He's flowing into you. And what does he do? What does the Holy Spirit do in you? How many of you guys are believers? Christians? How many of you guys have God the Holy Spirit living in you? Okay, some of you are less confident about the second question. Okay, and that's okay. But let's do this again. Okay, here we go. How many of you guys are Christians? Okay, trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. How many of you guys have God, the Holy Spirit, living in you? Okay, let's do it one more time. No, I'm just kidding. So just for next time, in case anyone asks, this is the same answer. Okay, so you don't get one without the other. Okay, you have God living within you. And let me, since we're, you guys are so ready to be involved here, what does the Holy Spirit do in you? Let's just, let's talk. What does the Holy Spirit do in you? Anyone? Convicts you of the truth, okay? Both like the truth of Scripture and also even convicts us of sin. And so both the moral and the, the theological component. Intercedes on our behalf, which is really cool. Amazing. Yeah, it's a, Romans 8. Encourages us right? Encourages us? Comforts us? What was that? Connects us to Christ, so union with Christ, that's a great answer. What's that? Leads us, leads it, led by the Spirit, just like they were being led by the pillar of fire, like we're led by the Spirit. Cleans house, he convicts us and transforms us. Who was over here? He reminds us of God's Word. It's amazing, right? All the things the Holy Spirit's doing with this. I have a brief list. He assures you of the Father's love for you, right? We see that in Romans 8, that he personally is in you telling you, you know, the Father really, really loves you. He's loved you before the foundation of the world, and he is completely committed to you, and, and, and he has just an incredible love for you, okay? The Spirit assures us of the Father's love for us. The Spirit gives us a love for God in response, because you didn't come with that, you know, you didn't have that originally. Ephesians 2 talks about that. We, we actually hated him, we didn't want him. He gives you a love for God. The Spirit changes you, making you more and more like Christ. There's an internal transformation to the external life. The Spirit gives you a felt sense of the presence of God. I think this one's really cool. We don't always get to enjoy this, but when we do feel the felt presence of God, we know that's the Holy Spirit doing that. The Spirit enables you to minister to others, gives you a love for other people and, and abilities to serve them. In other words, guys, the Holy Spirit gives us Christ. That's what he does. He's giving us Christ. When the Holy Spirit comes, he isn't giving us something else other than Christ. He's actually giving us Christ. As, 
as Chad was saying, he unites us to Christ and he's giving us Christ, right? The Spirit gives us Christ. So Jesus came to give us the Holy Spirit and then the Spirit has now come to give us Christ. Think about it. When, When the Spirit assures you that God loves you, that's you being assured you're in Christ, right? When the Spirit gives you a love for God, what he's doing is he's giving you Jesus' affections for his own Father. Isn't that cool? Like, that's Jesus' affections you're having for the Father. When the Spirit gives you a love for God, that's what he's doing. When the Spirit transforms your life, what's he doing? He's giving you Jesus' life in you. Your transformation, your righteousness, your holiness, the things that God's doing in your life, aren't something apart from Christ. This is actually Jesus Christ living through you. Isn't that amazing? And the Spirit does that. When the Spirit enables you to minister, what is he doing? He's giving you Jesus's abilities to minister. Guys, whether you're reading the Word or taking communion or you're praying or you're seeking change or you're being convicted of sin or you're receiving comfort from the Spirit, in all these things, the Spirit is giving you Christ. It's really cool when you think about it. It's like, so the Father sent Jesus for us, sent Christ to us. Father sends Christ to us. Christ comes, dies for our sins. He sends the Spirit for us. And then the Spirit, what? Gives us Christ. Who also gives us the Father. It's amazing, but you are actually living within the love that the three persons of the Trinity have had from all eternity. That's what's going on there. It's not like you're standing over here and God's way over there and you're trying to somehow live for Him and somehow follow Him. It's like, no, God has come close. He's come all the way into you by the Holy Spirit. This is a love that the persons of the Trinity have had for one another from all eternity, and and you're caught up in it. So how do we receive Him? This text tells us, verse 37, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Jesus stood up and He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think this is a really cool image of faith, that it's drinking. Isn't that interesting? John, he uses eating as an image of faith. Here he's using drinking as an image of faith. He says, whoever believes in me, verse 38, and that connects with drinking, right? So come to me and drink, and then he says, for whoever believes in me, these are the same thing, right? How do you receive the Spirit? By believing in Christ. And the way you believe in Christ, it's like drinking. It's an amazing image because it means that faith is just knowing your need for him and taking him. Like a dehydrated man, you know, you're just super dehydrated, and you see this water, and you, you know you need it desperately, and you drink it. You take him into yourself. That's what it means to believe in him. It means to just receive him, to know your need for him, and just take him in. And, and notice, guys, that that's more than just knowing, because a lot of people can be in church for a long time, and they know a lot about Jesus, but they haven't, they didn't drink him, you know? They, they knew that, oh yeah, he's, he's God, and oh yeah, he's done these things, and man, if people would take him, that would be great for them. But they haven't actually seen their need and drank him in themselves. So you have to take him in and drink him. So I just ask you this morning, you know, do you feel a deep emptiness in the center of your being? You know, if you felt empty, and you've tried all kinds of things to fill it, if you're longing for something to fill this void that you don't even really understand why you have it. You don't try all kinds of different things to fill it. If you're looking for something to give you happiness and meaning and peace, Jesus has an invitation here. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
And it's hard to put in better words than Jesus did, of course, but if you come to Christ, you will receive the Spirit, and He'll fill you. Like, if you're not a Christian now, you are actually quite empty, and He will fill you with His Spirit. He says, out of your heart, out of the very center of your being, God will dwell there. You know, how does Jesus fill the emptiness? He fills the emptiness with God. That's a pretty good way to fill it. Like, what else would you put in there? <laughs> you know, you know, he fills it with God. He, he fills us with the Spirit. Um, the fourth century African bishop, Augustine, he, sa- he said it this way. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find rest in you. You know, and you could say, you've made us thirsty, <laughs> O Lord, and we'll be thirsty until we satisfy our thirst in you. And notice, too, guys, that none of this is earned. You don't get forgiven or filled by the Spirit by doing anything. It's by believing. It's by just knowing that you have the need for forgiveness and filling and just receiving Him. It's drinking. It's just take Him in. And I think, guys, I mentioned this earlier, but I think there's an invitation to us as Christians, too. You say, well, that's a good evangelistic message. And I'm like, you not been thirsty lately? Have you been drinking the wrong things at all? You've been trying to fill your life with sand lately? Anyone? Okay, a lot of you guys had great weeks. That's good. So, but this is an invitation to Christians. He's inviting us every day to do this. He's inviting us every day to come to him and drink. You know, how do we deal with our thirst for sin? How do we find strength to be faithful to him? How do we find the ability to keep on loving other people and serving them and ministering to them? Jesus said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You guys have experienced that, right? Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit. And he says, he says basically in the Greek, he says, keep on being filled with the Spirit. And, and it's something that God does, but we have to sometimes get a hold of and find. You know, We reach out for it, and he fills us. Guys, you know what it's like to be dry? It's an old expression, right? How you doing? Well, brother, I've been kind of dry lately. You know, That's an old Christian expression. It's talking about this. You also know how it's like to live in your own strength. You know exactly what that's like. And you also know, Christians, you guys know what it feels like to have your heart flow with rivers of living water. You guys have felt that. We can have that. We need to keep seeking it, though. The more we want to live in our own power, the more we kind of push God away. Not that we're angry with Him, not that we don't want Him in our lives, but we just kind of want to have our own little space over here. As much as we do that, we're going to find ourselves more and more dehydrated, more and more powerless, and more and more drawn to all kinds of other things. If you're a Christian, guys, the Holy Spirit has so connected you to Christ that you have a way to receive His life in the very center of your being anytime you seek Him. And the best way I know of is you find a place, you open God's Word, you ask Him to speak to you and fill you, and you wait there till it happens. I mean, we're so distracted. We have so little focus. If God doesn't fill me in the next two minutes, I'm gone. I got things to do. Like, sometimes you need to spend some time with the Lord, right? Fill me, you know? This is real empty. This might take some time, like, to sit there and just really enjoy His presence and ask Him to fill you with the Spirit. So I just ask you, have you been seeking satisfaction in God? Have you been taking the time to really enjoy this promise that's yours? This isn't an, just an evangelistic promise. This is for his kids. You could be filled any time. You could receive strength and joy and comfort from him at any moment. 
You know what is to, he told his disciples? This is really interesting. He told his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he's telling like Peter and John and James and all these people. He's saying, it's actually better if I leave you now. Like, this is hard to believe, right? Can you imagine? You walked around with him for three and a half years or something, and then he's going to leave you. And he says that it's actually better to actually have the Spirit come and dwell within you and receive the ministry of the Spirit than have Jesus walking around with you. Part of that is, is that, you know, the physical body is limited. There's only so many people he could be present for. But, but that it would be better even for those guys who had him. Guys, if that's true, and it is, then none of us are enjoying as much of the Spirit as we could. Right? I mean, how many of you guys right now, if I said, hey, how would you like Jesus? You, you lose the Spirit within you, but you have Jesus like cruising around with you in your car and stuff all day. Most of us would be like, I'll take it, right? That's not what Jesus says, though. He says that there's something for us in the ministry of the Spirit that's better than the physical presence those guys had. And so I just say, there is far more of Christ to enjoy through the Spirit than any of us have begun to taste. And I don't say that to shame you or make you feel guilty or anything. I say that to make you feel thirsty. You know, like, we could have more, couldn't we? We have had more in the past, haven't we? Can you think back to times when you're like, oh, yeah, those were good times. I used to just, like, read the Word, and, you know, I used to journal. You know, I used to finish journals and not just throw them away after three pages. And I used to, like, sing worship songs, and I just used to really feel God's presence. And most of us, we make excuses for that. We say, well, yeah, no, but now I have kids, and, you know, work's different, and I got all these, I don't have time anymore. But is that really it? That's not really it. That's not really it. We need to come to him and drink, guys. Let's seek him. Let's, let's get what he's offering us here. Let's pray. Father, good news upon good news, Lord, that you would both send Christ to forgive us and to fill us with your spirit. And we just confess, Lord, we are real newbies in this. And Lord, we have not sought you or experienced you in all the ways we could. And that's exciting to us. That's exciting to us. Lord, teach us how to, how to seek you every day. Teach us how to really focus in times in your word and in prayer and just enjoying your presence, Lord. Cause us to stop and, and notice we're empty and dry and, and desire to be filled by your spirit. Lord, this love of Jesus for us is a love that was first in your heart. Father, it is you who set your affections on us before you made the world. It is you who planned that all of our sins would be taken away. It is you who have always loved us. We thank you for this gift of the Spirit, to have God the Spirit living in the very center of our being, to be refreshed by him. Father, free us from evil thirsts for things that do not satisfy. Father, cause the very life of Jesus to flow through us. Lord, there's times in Acts where people were, they could see the difference. And the Spirit entered these people. And we just pray, Lord, that you would cause Christ's life to be so evident in our lives that it, it would be visible. It would be seen. Lord, help us to abide in your Son, Jesus. Father, we thank you that no matter what wilderness you've sent us into, that we can be confident that you will refresh us with the water of your Spirit. 
If Jesus was struck in the wilderness for us, we ought not to doubt that you will meet us in any wilderness to give us the water of life. I pray for those who are here, Lord, that are in a very difficult time in the wilderness, and I pray, Lord, that they would find refreshment in you. That they would see this promise fulfilled. This is a promise from your son Jesus, and they would see that fulfilled in their very experience. Lord, be our shelter in the wilderness. Be our pillar of fire to guide us. Be our water to refresh us. We pray that you do this for the glory of your son Jesus. We pray in his name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.